Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. In the 18th century, the London Stock Exchange could be a bit of a zoo. It was here that the phrases "bull market" when prices are rising and "bear market" when they're falling originated. And there was one more animal to add to the menagerie: bankrupts who defaulted on their debts and waddled out of the exchange in shame were given an appropriate nickname: lame ducks. The moniker eventually spread across the Atlantic, where it was repurposed to describe politicians who'd run out of electoral rather than financial credit. The lame duck Congress is sitting now with a coterie of lawmakers whose days are numbered. For Democrats, this could be the last chance to get some really important bills passed. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from the Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what should Democrats do with limited time in the lame duck Congress? Politicians have returned to Washington following the Thanksgiving break for what Democrats hope will be a legislative flurry. Once Republicans take over the House in January, passing bills will get a lot harder. Will some combination of the five retiring Republican senators plus persuadable moderates get in the festive spirit and help Democrats pass significant legislation? What can and what should the lame duck session of the 117th Congress accomplish? With me to talk about our hopes and fears for the lame duck session are Charlotte Howard and Idris Kaloun. Charlotte, you're across the table from me in New York. How are you doing? I am very well. It was Thanksgiving last week. I was with my father's side of the family in Georgia and absolutely inundated with political ads for the Warnock Walker race that is underway and will be decided next week. Uh, in New York, we don't get political advertisements in that way. It's just not something that New Yorkers are accustomed to. We're barraged with everything except for political ads. And so it was kind of interesting to see how the candidates are trying to shape their messaging in these last few days before the before the election. And Idris, it was really nice to glimpse you in person in D.C. earlier in the week. How are things over there? Um, they're good. We also had a very nice Thanksgiving. We were in Kentucky. We had a maybe 30-person uh, dinner, which was great. Uh, made some of the classics and uh, some pumpkin tiramisu, which was my my favorite. You made pumpkin tiramisu? Alice and I made it. That's very impressive. Yeah, we did. We did a lot. That is really impressive. Should that be the subject of this podcast or should we do the lame duck congress? I'm in two minds. I, I'll just say it's very easy. You just mix some pumpkin puree into the mascara pony and then that's it. And then it, it looks very, very festive. That's my type of cooking. I could get behind that. 
That does sound good. Okay, that's news you can use. The other thing that we have to announce, this is episode 150 of Checks and Balance. So to those of you who've listened from the start, thank you so much for sticking with us. To those of you who are newer, I hope you stay with us for the next few. Um, Particular thanks, I think, to our producers, John Shields and Harriet Noble and Amika Nolan, who've produced this show, and also to Nico Rofast, our ever-present sound engineer, who's who's the brilliance behind the scenes. Uh, so thank you to all of you. Okay, well, we've got a lot to talk about in this episode, so let's get into it. And I think it could be quite an upbeat, somewhat hopeful one about things that Congress might actually get done, which is unfamiliar territory for us. I spoke earlier in the week to Senator Angus King. He represents Maine as an independent, but he caucuses with the Democrats. We spoke on Tuesday morning, and that afternoon, the Respect for Marriage Act passed the Senate. I began by asking him what he is hoping to achieve in the lame duck session. ECA reform, Electoral Count Act reform, is number one on my list. I think that's the most important structural thing uh, for for the democracy. And if we don't get it done before the new Congress, I think it's going to be very difficult given the change in the in the political control in the House. So uh, I think that's a high priority. The defense authorization bill is also important because it contains a lot of the, the new initiatives and the, and the work in the in the Defense Department. But it also and this isn't widely known, it carries along with it the uh, intelligence authorization bill, the State Department authorization bill. So it has a lot of important provisions. Third is a budget, uh, what they call an omnibus, which is a a budget. We passed a continuing resolution at the end of September that expires, I think it's December 16th, and we ought to be able to do a budget. I mean, the committees have done the work. It's a matter of of negotiating a top line, and then the allocations sort of fall from that. But I'm worried that that may not happen. Finally, we're working right now on this marriage equality bill. Uh, that's important. You started with the Electoral Count Act. That was the number one thing on your list. And for those of our listeners who've maybe buried what happened in the 2020 election somewhere in the back of their minds, because it was such an unpleasant experience, can you remind us why the Electoral Count Act is important and why reforming it before the next Congress takes its seat is an important thing to do? Well, I hope you'll allow me a bit of historical digression. It rests in the provision of the Constitution that establishes the Electoral College. And if you go back and read the Federalist 68, which is Hamilton's justification for the Electoral College, I don't often disagree with Hamilton, but he, he got it wrong. The framers were of two minds. They liked the idea of public participation and democracy with a small d, but only so far. They were very concerned about what they called the mob, the only body in the U.S. Constitution at the time of its adoption that was popularly elected directly by the people was the House of Representatives. The senators were elected by the state legislatures, and the president was elected by this thing called the Electoral College. Hamilton's theory, which looks naive in retrospect, was the Electoral College would be a kind of filter, a council of wise people who would be elected by the popular vote in their state, but then they would exercise some kind of independent judgment. As I see it now, we have the worst of both worlds. We have a system that intermediates between the people and the presidency, but it's a system that's subject to manipulation and mischief. And that brings us to the Electoral Count Act. The original Electoral Count Act was passed in 1887 as a reaction 
to the unbelievably tightly contested uh, 1876 presidential election between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. And the election was so close that they just couldn't resolve it. They ended up setting up a commission, which, by the way, my friend Ted Cruz keeps citing as what we ought to do is is a mission. That's what he wanted to do on January 6th. Well, that commission's one of the darker moments in American history because they ended up making a corrupt deal to make Hayes the president, the Republican, in exchange for his agreement to end Reconstruction in the South, which in turn led to 90 years of, of Jim Crow laws and the disenfranchisement of African-Americans throughout the South. So anyway, they had the election. It was a mess. They had the commission. Uh, nobody was very happy with it. So they passed this bill called the Electoral Count Act, which was designed to have a process for how the Electoral College was supposed to work. The problem is, it's probably one of the most confusing pieces of legislation ever adopted. It's ambiguous. It has all kinds of places where it can be manipulated. And on January 6th, of course, we saw that happen. And so what do you think can be done to prevent another January the 6th? What are your proposed reforms? What we're trying to do is simply clarify some of the areas of ambiguity and areas where uh, malfeasance is, if not encouraged, at least allowed. For example, making clear that the vice president is just supposed to gavel in the session and preside has no substantive power to decide which votes from which states count. That, of course, was at the heart of Trump's scheme on January 6th, was to get Mike Pence to exercise that authority which Mike Pence, to his credit, realized and decided he didn't have that power. But this bill that would clarify that. One of the other areas of the bill of the, the law that's a problem is one member of each house can raise an objection and start the process of, of adjudicating whatever that problem is. The bill that emerged from the committee, the compromise uh, proposal is 20%. So that's another area of clarification. The other is to clarify who certifies the votes in a particular state. And right now you, you have these situations where you might have a rogue legislature decide, well, we're going to certify. The bill makes it clear it's the governor. Well, we've established something that isn't in the original Electoral Count Act, which is judicial review. Go to court to decide, you know, that if the governor is carrying out his or her constitutional and legal responsibility. So that's the essence of what we're doing. But I got to tell you, John, the deeper I get into this, we ought to get rid of the Electoral College. The real solution, in my mind, in the long run, is to allow the people of the United States to elect the president. Why should a vote in California count less than a vote in uh, Ohio? I agree with you on that one, though. You're going to have your hands pretty full in the lame duck trying to fix the things that seem possible before we get onto the long list of things that are necessary but impossible. So you've said that the Electoral Count Act and reforming that is at the top of your list, but all the things you've mentioned in our conversation are pretty important. So how do you come up with your list and how do you prioritize? Do you have a sort of mental ranking constantly of what the most important thing is where some change might be possible? How do you make your list? Well, it's you, you imply that I have the decision as to what wow. the priorities are through some oversight. I'm not in that position, uh, but I've tried. I did list the Electoral Count Act first because that goes to the infrastructure of democracy itself and all everything else in terms of budgets and 
and marriage equality, all of those things are basically policy questions that are important. But if the structure of the system isn't working, nothing else works. So that's why I put Electoral Count Act at the top of the list. Idris, so reforming the Electoral Count Act is at the top of Senator King's list. What do you think the chances are that that's something the Senate's able to do in the short time available? Well, the signals are looking pretty good. Last I checked, the reform that he described there had 16 Republican senators signed on to it and, you know, most Democrats, which should mean that the bill is able to pass even a threat of a filibuster. And, you know, we already saw that the Respect for Marriage Act, which also got a lot of Republicans on board, did manage to pass, and we expect that that'll get signed into law. I think the question is not so much whether or not the votes are going to be there. It's a matter of priorities in the short amount of time available. In fact, calendar time is a lot longer than legislative time, because doing anything on the Senate eats up a lot of hours. And particularly if you have someone who's minded, any senator who's minded to gum up the works, as you know, at least one of them will be, a lot of these things will take up days. And suddenly the month or so that we seem like we have, factoring in Christmas and, and what else, actually is quite limited. And there are a lot of other competing priorities to address at the moment. So there needs to be some sort of deal to keep the government open past December 16th. That's when uh, the uh, funding would lapse. And Democrats are now trying to figure out whether they can just do a continuing resolution, which would basically uh, keep business as usual, or whether they can try to get a last-ditch spending effort uh, through. And there are a bunch of things that people would like to include on that. But they have to think about getting that done. There's also an ongoing railroad strike, which Congress has to intervene in. So they're getting their uh, heads pulled in a few different directions. So uh, the question is not really whether or not uh, you know enough Republicans will vote for it. We think that they will. It's whether or not they'll have enough time to actually get it all through. Yeah, the railroad strike to me is the classic example of something where you have best laid plan and then an urgent situation arises and Congress is completely consumed by it, right? So, as Dries pointed out, you can draw up a list of things you'd like to do in an ideal world, uh, draw up a list of of things that you presumably have time for, and then that time vanishes. I will say, though, just looking back at past lame ducks, there is the potential to surprise in an interesting way, and we'll talk more about that, I know. But, John and Dries, I'm curious what you think about the chances that this particular Congress could defy that ticking clock. Do you think there's anything about the nature of their control or or marginal control of the Senate, that means that it's going to be much, much harder this time around? Do you think that the Republicans were in more of a deal-making mood? What do you think are the odds of having a bit more activity in the next month? I I think the gay marriage bill, if it passes, will be huge. I mean, previous lame duck saw the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. This is even more significant than that. And so even in its own right, I think that's a fairly productive uh, outcome. I, I think that on the wish list of things that we didn't mention, Joe Manchin's permanent reform bill, which he also wants to to get in, um, I don't think all of those things are going to get through. And I don't think uh, necessarily some of the priorities that Democrats have, like uh, returned expansion of the child tax credit, is necessarily going to happen. But um, you know, even one or two of these things are fairly significant. 
Okay, well, so much for the Electoral Count Act and reforming that, and also for recognising gay marriage in federal law. But there are lots of other things that the lame duck might also consider. We'll go back to a particularly productive lame duck session for Democrats in just a moment. But first, I have a favour to ask of you. We hope that you really like the podcast as it is, but we're always trying to make it better. And to help us do that, we want to know a little bit more about you, our dear listeners. So we have a short survey that we'd love you to fill out. If you go to economist.com slash survey, you can find the link. It should take about 10 minutes. And you'd really be doing us a favour if you filled it in. So thank you in advance. Again, the link is economist.com slash survey, And we'll put that link in the notes for this episode. The House will be in order. The clock was ticking. Democrats had kept control of the Senate in the midterm elections, just about, but they'd lost the House, and soon Republicans in the lower chamber would block most of the first-term president's agenda. They had until the new year to make some legislative headway. The prayer will be offered by our chaplain, Father Coughlin. The lame duck session of the 111th Congress opened on November the 15th, 2010, with the usual ceremony. Be with all the members in the final weeks of this 111th Congress. But then the legislative floodgates opened. In the 38 days it sat between the midterms and Christmas, Congress passed several major pieces of legislation for President Obama to sign into law. A bill to extend Bush-era tax cuts and provide further unemployment benefits. Tens of millions of Americans will start the new year off right by opening their first paycheck to see that it's actually larger than the one they get right now. The repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which had only allowed gay people to serve in the military if they kept their sexuality private. No longer will our country be denied the service of thousands of patriotic Americans who were forced to leave the military. A food safety bill. The biggest upgrade of America's food safety laws since the Great Depression. Legislation to cover the cost of health care for 9-11 first responders who'd become sick from toxic fumes. A defence funding bill and the New START treaty with Russia. This is the most significant arms control agreement in nearly two decades. And it will make us safer and reduce our nuclear arsenals along with Russia. For a month or so, politicians learned how to be bipartisan. 30% of the significant legislation passed in the entire two-year Congress was passed in the lame duck session. At the time, it was the most productive lame duck session since World War II. The 2010 lame duck Congress should have perhaps been renamed the Healthy Mallard Congress. This one may be similarly productive. Charlotte, it feels like the lame duck session is now an important part of America's unwritten constitution, right? It's quite often the case that the must-passed stuff or the ambitious stuff or the deals that seem a bit difficult to get done get done in the lame duck. Was this always the case, do you know? Well, you may not know this. Adrice obviously does. But it wasn't until 1933, actually, that lame duck sessions became so short. So it used to be people were sworn in in March. So the lame duck session would be much, much longer. You'd have more time to do more things. And it was in the 30s that they changed the swearing in date for new members of Congress to January, which I discovered yesterday while I did preparing not know for that. this podcast. Did you know that, Idris? Uh Yeah. And the presidential transition used to also be six months long, right? 
or four months long or something crazy like that. I thought that that was kind of interesting. But, I mean, there are different versions of the of things that happen in a lame duck. One is a politician is on the verge of losing power, and so then they scramble to make things and, and make concessions uh, just to get something done because the clock has run out. And I can bring every story back to Alaska. But Carter did that with um, ANILCA, which was this enormous conservation act right before Reagan became president that was the biggest single act of conservation in American's history. And he'd been trying to do that basically for a decade. And it wasn't until the waning weeks of December that he was actually able to get it done. Idris, the productivity of lame ducks now sort of strengthens the argument in my mind for term limits for congressmen. I'm not a big fan of that argument generally. But if you had term limits, then you'd have a lot more you know, people in lame duck position who then might be prepared to be a bit more pragmatic and get things done. Are you at all convinced by the argument for term limits? Um, well, you're putting me on the spot. But I know that there are a bunch of state legislatures that do have term limits, And I think that there have been some political science studies of whether or not that encourages more bipartisanship. My dim recollection of the results was that not necessarily. And so based on the memory of that, which may or may not be accurate, I think that term limits might not be the sort of silver bullet for Congress that we think it would be. But nonetheless, uh, people on on their way out are certainly a lot more uh, willing to engage in some amount of bipartisan um, uh, negotiating. I think one thing that happens with term limits, now that I think about it, is you see a lot of games where people go from the state house to the state senate. Uh, so people aren't really done with their political careers or they're contemplating to run for governor. So they're still acting in quite a partisan and canny way. And they're not necessarily treating the end of their term in that office as their last hurrah, which is maybe what is necessary here. So we've already talked about the 2010 lame duck session, and Charlotte mentioned the 1980 lame duck under Carter, between Carter and Reagan. Have you guys got any other good trivia about particularly productive lame duck sessions of Congress? Well, Bill Clinton was impeached during one lame duck. That's maybe not such a happy precedent. No, but he did win his subsequent midterm elections, so maybe maybe he was. The other thing, the Clinton-related lame duck that I find interesting are, is the presidential pardon lame duck phenomenon, where at the end of your presidency, you pardon all kinds of people who may or may not have been helpful to you at various points in your political career. And, and Bill Clinton obviously did this with Mark Rich, who had been convicted of tax fraud. Yeah, that is now a bit of an American tradition. I mean, George H.W. Bush pardoned several of the people who were involved in the Iran-Contra affair when he was a lame duck president as well. You can sometimes have really extraordinarily productive lame ducks, which happened with 116th Congress. But it's really a marker of um, how unproductive they were the rest of the time, right? So there's sometimes an inverse correlation between lame duck productivity and general productivity, because even though that those few weeks were extremely busy for Congress, the 116th Congress overall was one of the absolutely least uh, productive Congresses of the past 50 years. That was, of course, the the lame duck that ended in 2020. I feel like there's some analogy here for sort of people who procrastinate for a really long time and then get stuff done in a very short burst just before the deadline. I don't know anything about that. Essentially. Totally (laughs) unfamiliar phenomenon. Congress acting like a bunch of journalists. Okay, let's pause the conversation here for now, but we'll be back in a moment to count down the rest of our wish list for the lame duck session. (laughs) 
You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. One other thing that we here at The Economist would like Congress to address in the lame duck session is the status of dreamers. So hundreds of thousands of people who were brought to America illegally as children but have lived and worked here ever since still have to reapply for permission to remain every two years. Our Lexington columnist, James Bennett, has written a great column last week arguing that the lame duck session is going to be the last chance for a while for Congress to act to protect dreamers. We chatted about how this is an issue that many people have forgotten still needs to be solved. The status of the dreamers became terribly confusing, both the legal wrangling that's been going on and the, and the political wrangling. And it, at some point, it probably became hard for most folks except the dreamers themselves and the people that are trying to do right by them to, to really keep track of it. Because in the Trump years, Donald Trump send very mixed messages about the dreamers. Like all Republicans, like anybody, you know, I think he finds it extremely hard to try to articulate a reason that these people should not become American citizens. Um, Justice is on their side. They were brought to the United States as children. They grew up as Americans. Um, They're by and large in jobs that are considered critical by the Department of Homeland Security. And yet, Congress has been unable to take the next step and actually grant them legal status. And yeah, my big worry is that if they don't get it done in a lame duck, it's only going to be harder to try to get it done in the next Congress. So as you say, under the Trump administration, you had this strange situation where Donald Trump talked about loving the dreamers. And yet, in typical Trump style, put out an executive order, I think, that pointed towards deportation for the dreamers, but it was done in such a cack-handed way that then the courts struck it down. So we were left in this very confusing situation. And ultimately, after a lot of heat and not a lot of light, the dreamers are back in the situation they were in before and have been for 10 years now and longer even, right? Right. Although the peril, perils of Pauline quality of all this is that they're back in the same situation, yet more legal danger is uh, uh, hanging over their heads now because Barack Obama's original order is also being challenged in the courts. And while Joe Biden took a measure to try to fortify it, that legal case is also now back in federal court and is working its way sort of inevitably towards the Supreme Court. And and we don't know what they would do. Uh, In the end, the courts are probably not the the best security for the dreamers, it's Congress. And it should be said, John, it's important to remember that this is only a subset of the dreamers, you know, that Barack Obama's executive order uh, was delivered in 2012, and it was meant to cover people who'd arrived before the year 2007, before the age of 16. So all the young people who've been brought to the U.S. since then, and they're believed to number about 400,000, are not covered by DACA. So there's a whole rising generation of children, just like these other dreamers, um, who don't have the protection of DACA. Just on the dreamers specifically, you know, as you say, it's a subset of Congress's general failure to come up with an immigration system that works for America. 
even immigration hawks, by and large, on the Republican side, have nice things to say about this group. Why has it been so hard for Congress to come up for a solution that works for dreamers, even though people have been trying to make deals, and it's always seemed like a deal has been possible for, for 10 years, and yet here we are? I, I um hesitating a little bit because I just find it hard not to give a cynical answer to that question. I hate to, I hate to do that, um, but it's hard not to conclude that it's, it's well, it's not an entirely cynical answer. Some of it is just base politics. And, and while that is, um, you know, Republicans, some Republicans responding to the very, very activist base who are capable of making life very hard for them and preventing them get through primaries. I don't consider that a cynical answer because that's simply a reality of American politics that both parties, anybody in politics, has to contend with that kind of reality. The other piece of it, though, that I think is true that people say is that a lot of politicians would rather have the problem than the solution. They'd they'd rather have this problem to run on and um, and really, a, a, you know, demagogue on rather than solve it and move on. And that that is, uh, again, I mean, I think it's a terribly cynical thing to say, but I'm afraid that's the truth. Let's end on a hopeful note. There are some talks going on in the Senate. What do you think a possible deal might look like? Let's keep our fingers crossed for it. In some ways, this reminds me of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that I covered where everybody knows what the deal is or used to know what the deal was of what was possible, um, yet somehow could never quite get there. And in this case, the, the deal that was the Gang of Eight deal, the broader immigration deal, was uh, tightened border security in, in return for a more sensible naturalization process of path to citizenship. I think in broad strokes, that remains the deal today. And you could imagine, specifically for DACA, a narrower agreement on border security or some aspect of amnesty reform in exchange for a clear path to citizenship for these people. And again, you can imagine it being quite a narrow exchange in this case because there is really broad support among Republican legislatures and, and surveys consistently show extremely broad support among Republicans, really strong majorities of Republicans in the country favor the idea of a path to citizenship for people brought here as children. It's not a controversial point of view. So, as James explained there, a law passed by Congress that would regularize the immigration status of about 300 or 400,000 dreamers is long overdue. That's something we'd really like to see done in this lame duck session. It's possible as long as the clock doesn't run out, I think. We've already mentioned the gay marriage bill and also reform of the Electoral Count Act. Both of those look like they could happen as well. You know, there are majorities, clear majorities for, for those laws. And then there are a few other things. Idris mentioned in passing, Joe Manchin has a permitting law, which may sound a little obscure, but it's incredibly important if America's going to manage to take advantage of some of the spending from the federal government in the Inflation Reduction Act and get to much lower carbon emissions by the end of this decade and by the end of the next decade. Really, without that permitting reform that would make it easier to build electric transmission lines, new clean energy infrastructure, it's going to be really, really hard for America to decarbonize. So that's a really important one. Again, it looks like there ought to be votes for that. 
Idris mentioned the budget. One other thing that would be great, but I think probably won't happen because it's difficult, is raising the debt ceiling. It's quite possible there'll be a showdown over raising the debt ceiling next year. That's something we've seen often when Congress has been divided, and that's not a particularly helpful thing for America. And it's it's kind of absurd because I think everybody knows that you know somebody's going to blink, right? America's not actually going to default on its sovereign debt, and so it would be good if Congress just took the bullets out of the pistol on that one. And then the final one, I would say, in this rather long wish list, but is a really, really important one. It would be great if Congress could fund support, military support, particularly for Ukraine through until uh, the end of next year or even, even longer. I mean, Vladimir Putin has this strategy in the war in Ukraine to try and outlast the West to you know, starve and freeze Ukraine into submission. And Vladimir Putin's betting that he just has more patience than the West and that America does. And it would be an incredibly strong signal to Ukraine at a very, very difficult time if Congress were able to authorise that kind of continuing support. So that's a really long list. But that last one, I think, is a is an important one not to forget. Have you guys got anything else to add to that? I mean, that's already too much, right? Yeah, I would add to it. So one is um, Adrisa's favourite subject, which is child tax credits. I mean, I wish that that was something that could be included. It's It was one of the um, few policies that had a really, really dramatic impact very quickly, uh, an, even, an even bigger impact than we expected when it was rolled out in 2021. There was, I think, Dries can correct me, but I think it was a 25% drop in child poverty just from the extension of that tax credit in one month. Yeah. And then overall, probably a 40% reduction, um, which has now lapsed. So that's one that I wish that they would do. On the permitting reform, you know, I actually think the child tax credit and permitting reform are are pretty interesting in contrast in that uh, the child tax credit to me is just a no-brainer. And permitting reform is actually sort of the ultimate brainer in that it used to be a Republican issue because they wanted to build pipelines and they wanted to make it easier for projects to move forward without dealing with environmental lawsuits, et cetera. Um, now it's a bipartisan issue for the reasons you described that you have to build transmission. Um, but it's not, you know, it's actually really, really tricky to get it done. Um, environmentalists historically have specialized in not building stuff, not in promoting the building of of things. And if you think about the scale of what uh, Democrats want for decarbonization, it's just absolutely enormous. There was a a study back when I was writing about this that estimated the amount of transmission that would need to be built in the 2020s to meet carbon goals. And it was a 60% increase in transmission capacity. That goes over a lot of people's lawns. It goes over a lot of people's private property. And so the question is, what type of trade-offs do you make? Whose interests are you serving? Um, And how much authority does the federal government have? How do you accommodate local interests, et cetera? And so it's actually a pretty tricky one because politicians on both sides of the aisle want this, but they also risk angering very specific constituencies within their own states because people uh, will oppose a given project. And I was struck recently, it looked like some of Manchin's allies in the Senate weren't really interested in including permitting reform as part of um, one of these sort of roll-up pieces of, of defense legislation. So I'm not as confident that this actually will move forward. I think it's hugely important, but it's not clear to me that it will. Idris, now it's your turn to stomp on our dreams for the lame duck session. I mean, as we've explained already, time is tight. 
and the Senate specialises in slowing things down. So if you had to bet, what do you think will get done and therefore what will get left out from among the long list of things we've discussed? Very happy to crush anyone's dreams for free. So you, know, you have to keep the government open. I think they'll do that. I think they'll do a budget. I don't know that they're going to do terribly much extra spending on top of it. I think that they'll get the gay marriage bill through. I think they will get the Electoral Count Act through, but I am more pessimistic on the vital, necessary, and somewhat uh, technocratic permitting reform bill. I think the finicky sorts of pieces of legislation, and even the Dreamers bill as well, just there isn't enough time to to get it all through. So I, you know, with, with these things, it's a bit like, um, you know, you structured your leader on this as a wish list, right? And you, if you ask any kid what they want for Christmas, they'll give you 11 suggestions, one of which is like a PS5 and a pony, and you just can't get those things. So uh, some of these things are ponies, and some of these things are like stocking stuffers, I guess. So Yes, in last week's issue of The Economist, I wrote a leader, so those are the opinion pieces at the front, listing five things that we hoped that the Congress would get done in this lame duck session. But even that was tough, actually, limiting it to five. Well, I guess we just have to hope that Congress makes the most of the time between now and January, because I don't think any of us are expecting much legislation, much meaningful legislation to pass in the next two years of divided government. Okay, Idris, Charlotte, thank you. Speaking of dream crushing, I have a quiz for you both before we go. The Economist wrote about the 96th lame duck congress in 1980 and described it as more like a body whose goose had been cooked. Question one, how many future vice presidents were part of the 96th congress and who were they? Hmm. So 1980. I assume Biden was one because he was a senator then. Uh, Dick Cheney might have been a rep from Wyoming then. Dick Cheney was. We've got two out of Al four. Al Gore. Al Gore's three. Oh, he was there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, was Quail? I'm just going backwards now. Quail was the other one. You've got all four. Well done, guys. That's excellent. Joe Biden was a senator. Dan Quayle, Al Gore and Dick Cheney were all members of the House, although Quayle was elected to the Senate in the 1980 elections. So full marks to you guys there. Question two. Dan, as in Dan Quayle, is short for what? Ooh, I don't know the answer it's to this. It's not the obvious what is, thing. What could it be short for, if not Daniel? Um, wrong answers but, only. Yeah, wrong answers only. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, Dan Berth. Dan Berth. I like that. That's pretty... Danful? That's pretty close. Danforth. Danforth. It was Danforth. Yes. His his full name is James Danforth Quayle. At least his first name wasn't actually Danforth. That'd be a little strong. That would have been cruel. Quayle, like Joe Biden, was somewhat prone to gaffes when he was vice president, including the following. I've made good judgments in the past. I've made good judgments in the future. It's a (laughs) Quayleism. Um... And another favorite was, we're going to have the best educated American people in the world. <laughs> and, uh, keep going. This is good. I'll, I want half an hour just of this. Do you remember the potato incident? Oh, well, the potato is good. Yes, of course. Yeah, Idris, explain the potato. He was uh, visiting a elementary school, right? And then they were spelling on the board and they wrote out potato. And then he insisted that it needed, <laughs> it needed an E at the end. <laughs> Uh, so good. <laughs> There's just a really good video of it. 
I have one last one for you. For NASA, space is still a high priority. <laughs> There are a lot more where those came from. Well, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thanks. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble with research by Lizzie Peet. Our sound engineer is Nicola Rofast. Thank you to Owen Shearer at Sonic Union for helping record today's podcast. If you're at a loss for what to ask for for Christmas or need a brilliant gift to give to a loved one, then an Economist subscription is, of course, the obvious present. Go to economist.com slash uspod for the best introductory offer. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. That makes a big difference to how many people can find Checks and Balance and start listening. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening to this podcast. And for those of you who've listened to all of them, thanks for sticking with us for 150. Stay safe, stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. Listener.